Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. The biggest gift we can give the world is to go out in front of people and accept the possibility of being wrong. So today's guest, Colin Bevan, kind of burst onto the scenes in 2009 when he was featured along with his family in a documentary called No Impact Man and then published a book by the same name uh, in the following year that kind of exploded into the public's consciousness. And it told the story of a family living in the heart of New York City that spent a year trying to live with zero impact on the environment. And Some of the choices that they made looked like they were brutally hard from the outside looking in and probably from the inside looking out. But what they discovered along the way was that the choices and the shift in mindset and experience was to a large extent an incredible gift. And that also touched off this deeper exploration in Colin's mind about what does it actually mean to be alive on the planet? You know, how do we live a good life and how do we how do we relate to other people and be in service of other people and of the the planet in general? And what does that mean in terms of our ability to actually just live good lives? And that led him into a deep dive into the research on actually living a good life. And it opened his eyes to a lot of things he wasn't expecting to discover and culminated in a new book, which is really fascinating, called How to Be Alive. We dive into this in today's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So we're hanging out here, and it's kind of the eve of the publication, almost the eve of the publication of your next book. And I want to go deep into that because there's some really fascinating stuff on there. 
But let's give a little bit of context, too, and let's take a step back in time. You kind of burst into the public's consciousness a chunk of years back because of, I guess, a blend of your value set and sort of like a big social experiment that you were doing. Take me back. So this is back in 2007. That's when, as you put it, I burst into consciousness and we had a story in the front page of the New York Times about our project called No Impact Man. And what had happened was I had, I'm a writer, I had written two history books. And then back in 2006, I was, well, the Iraq war was happening and the Afghanistan war was happening. And also I was becoming aware of climate change. And so these, we had these two things where we had this war that we were prosecuting for oil. I mean, at the time we, we were told that it was for weapons of mass destruction, but I think no matter where you sit on the political whatever side of the political aisle you're on now, everybody agrees it was for oil. So we had this war, we were fighting for oil. And then the climate change, we had what was happening when we burned the oil, which was that we were making our our, our actual habitat uninhabitable. And then in between that, we had this way of life. You know, the reason why we burned the oil, the reason why we did the climate change. And we were, I see, we were wrecking the place and then we had this life. And, and so if we're going to wreck the place, we should be having a party doing it. And yet I looked around and I saw... Um, most of my friends were working 10, 12, 14-hour days. 25% of Americans could be diagnosed with depression or major anxiety disorder at any time. So there wasn't a party happening, and that's in the developed world. In the developing world, you know, there's a billion people without drinking water. So I was like, ah, what's going on? We had this, we're at war, we're wrecking the planet, and we're not even having a party doing it. And so I wanted to turn my writing career over to doing something about the things that I cared about. Mm. So the No Impact Man project evolved, which was a year we lived living as environmentally as possible. Were you attuned to sustainability and low impact before this, or was this sort of like, okay, what can I do that in some way? So my, my, the progression of my pr- career went that in my, well, in my early 20s, I did a PhD in engineering. And the reason why I did that was because I wanted to be rich. And this was at a time when electrical engineering was a thing, you know, yeah. at the beginning of computers and all that. But I tried that and I found out that it, I hated it. And yeah. orienting my life around being rich didn't work. And so through a strange convolution of things, I ended up being a communications consultant working only for socially good organizations. Which is about the exact opposite. <laughs> the exact opposite of engineering, right. And so I had this kind of social mission in my 20s. And then when I hit 30, I actually realized that what I wanted to do was be a writer. And so I moved to New York and I started writing and I was, I wrote these uh, two history books. And so I kind of, that was my passion. You know, the Mm. 20s was my concern in the world. The 30s was my passion. And then we got to this place. So, so, you know, your question was, was was I into sustainability? Uh, I wasn't into sustainability per se, but what happened was when this kind of, complex of the wars and climate change was happening, I realized that I was missing the mission orientation of my life. I had, you know, I was writing, which was my passion, but I wanted to bring it all together where I was both pursuing my passion, but pursuing my passion in a way that helped the world. So no, I wasn't a sustainability guy, but I was a social justice guy. Like I really cared about a a world, world that was fair to people and that was safe for people. And so that's what kind of brought it all together, bringing the the concern of my 20s with the passions of my 30s. It's so interesting the way you differentiate between passion and mission, because I don't think a lot of people go there. I think there's a lot of conversation around discover your passion and then follow your passion. And then there's a conversation around, you know, like find some cause, like find a mission, find something to believe in. 
But the uh, the conversation around sort of like finding the intersection of those two isn't a conversation I hear a whole lot. You know, so I, I mean, I, I teach a class at Sarah Lawrence College called Using the Arts for Social Change, which is really interesting because the idea that you should say use the arts for social change mm. is kind of a new thing in terms of the evolution of our culture. So what I'm saying is that passion and concern never used to be separate. If you wrote, you wrote because you wanted to change the world. If you made art, you you made art because you wanted to, you know, help the world. If you made music, it was because you had, you know, and and somehow over time, I would I think a lot of it has to do with the corporatization of media where where the stuff is made without message so that it can be sold to more people. Somehow over time Time, the concern for the world and the passion of expressing ourselves has become separate. Like, I want to be an artist that means just making lovely conceptual pictures or, or you know, something that attracts attention without necessarily always coming together with this concern. So that's why I differentiate them, because to me, you know, I know you talk a lot about the good life. The good life is a life where you get to bring your passions and concerns together in one mm-hmm. place, where you get to be exactly who you are in a way that totally helps the world. It's so interesting, though, because I think the vision of the artist now, like sort of the modern vision, is that, you know, it's a, quote, selfish pursuit. You know, it's sort of like you become utterly absorbed in the quest to fully self-express. You know, like there's something, there's a monster in your head that has to get out. And the idea is not getting out in service of. The idea is just it has to get out. Like for me to be okay in the world, I have to find a conduit, an outlet for that thing how it lands is not my business. It's, and it's interesting. I had Liz Gilbert on not too long ago. We were talking about her new book, Big Magic. And, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of her. I love her. She's got an amazing energy. And, and so much of what she writes inspires me. There was a line in the book that I kept stumbling over and I tripped on. It was a whole chapter, which was really, you know, don't write or don't create, you know, because you want it to be like instructive or it serve a purpose for other people. Just like do it because you have to do it. And I think there's an interesting conversation around sort of like where's the right place for any individual that's not being had in in something beyond a sort of a fluffy level. Right. I mean, I mean, I think a couple of things, like every medicine is for the particular disease. Yeah. And I think in this kind of post whatever era or in postmodernist era where art lacks a certain sort of messaging. So it means that the medicine for this disease is let's actually care about the audience and the effect that we're going to have on, on them. And also who I am and, and kind of who I call to are people who really need a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives and a, and a sense of connection to the world at large. So, you know, there may be people who, for whom pure self-expression is, is fine and God bless them too. Um, I tend to think about, to, to me, the highest, the highest calling is at the intersection of the two. Like, mm. what does the world need and what do I need and how, how can we make them happen together? Yeah, and we're definitely going to circle back to that in the not-too-distant uh, future of this conversation because it's an important thing that you go into in your most recent work. For those who don't know really, because we didn't really explain what No Impact Man and what that project was really about, can you just sort of thumbnail it? Sure. So just to give a little more background, I decided that I wanted to write about what was, you know, write something that would bring broader public interest to climate change and the wars and also how we live. Um, And at first I was going to write this finger wagging story about all how you people, you should stop riding your SUVs and, you know. And then one day I came into my house. It was a hot summer day. It was August. It was 
boiling in the corridor outside my apartment. And I opened the door to my apartment and this cold air came whooshing out because I had left the air conditioners on all day long because I didn't want to wait 15 minutes for the, for the apartment to cool down when I got home. And for some reason, for the first time it hit me like, well, if I'm leaving the air conditioners on all day long, just because I don't want to wait 15 minutes for the apartment to cool down. And young men and women are fighting in a war for energy. In other words, they are dying for energy, and I am wasting that self-same energy. What does, what does that actually mean? And I realized that I shouldn't be writing a book about how all well you people should change. I thought maybe I could write a book about how I change, like how I actually bring my life in line with my values. And so that became No Impact Man. And basically, it was a year with me and my then family, as it was comprised them, living together in Manhattan, living with as low environmental impact as possible, which meant, on the one hand, reducing the resources that we use, reducing our negative impact, and on the other hand, increasing the good that we did in the world, so increasing our positive impact. So the idea was that our reduced negative impact and our increased positive impact would be no net impact, which technically makes no sense, probably, but philosophically, the question was, is it possible for any of us to live a life doing more good than harm? Mm. How'd you answer the question? Oh, I think that's, I mean, I think think it's totally possible for us to do more good than harm. If you think about it, the amount of harm that any of us can do is limited. You can only do as much harm as, especially in the environmental sphere, it's limited by the number of resources that you use. And one person can only use so many resources. But the good that we can do, because it can magnify out into the world, it can be endless. And I think it's, and it's also, of course, not one of the questions that came up a lot in No Impact Man was, well, if you're trying to make uh, no impact, you might as well be dead because, you know, you're breathing air. That creates carbon dioxide. So why don't you just kill yourself? <laughs> People, the, the ultimate no impact yeah. man. People ask me that question a lot. And Really? That was, yeah. oh, yes. <laughs> why don't you just kill yourself and call yourself no impact man, but you have a dog. Man. <laughs> How could you have a dog if you're no impact man? I'm like, I like why are you picking on my dog? <laughs> but the real question is, is not, I don't think, and, and, and how many resources we use, but what do we use the resources for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, on a, the level of one person, like, w- what are you doing with your life? Are you using your life for good and helping the world, or is it only for you? If it's only for you, then it may be a waste of resources, especially when you realize that you yourself are going to die at one stage. So everything you do, if it has no positive effect on the rest of the world, c- could be called a waste. Right. But it's a good use of resources if it does help. Yeah. From that project, I mean, there was, there was a huge amount of publicity and media and then documentary. It seemed like that also, and well, you tell me from the inside looking out, you know, from the outside looking in, it seemed like that kind of exploded a conversation about all the things that you were talking about in a fairly public way. But it also seems like it really, it sent you career-wise in, in an interesting new direction. Both things, yes, both things happen. One, I think, I mean, obviously I've pondered a lot. Why did it explode in that way? And yeah. I, I think there was a conversation that we needed to have as a culture that wasn't happening. And part of the reason why it wasn't happening is things like climate change and consumption as a way of life seemed like big, policy, wonky, far away issues that people couldn't quite wrap their head around. But No Impact Man looked at those issues from the point of view of one person's life. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And so all of a sudden people were like, oh, this is where those big issues intersect with my life. Like now I understand about environmental resource use and, you know, I understand about, you know, big faraway government things. 
and my civic engagement, you know, my personal civic engagement, yeah. that's the intersection. So I, I think I think it was like a cork popping out of a champagne bottle in terms yeah. of like there was a lot of pressure or wanting to have a conversation but not knowing how to have it. And then somehow or another, I stumbled over a way to have the conversation. And by the way, that conversation went worldwide. It was the, the book got adopted at many, many college campuses and in both in the United States and Europe. And was really interesting for me because I became the also the recipient of what a lot of people were doing. In terms of my own career, people often would say to me, well, what's what was the hardest part of No Impact Man? And they expected to make me to say something like washing our clothes by hand, which I did, or living without electricity, which we did for six months. But in truth, those things were just habit changes. They weren't that challenging. Once you learned how to do them, it was fine to do them. It was amazing in many ways. Many amazing things happened. People thought, uh, would say, oh, you're depriving yourself. But actually, we, in many ways, we found out that we had already been deprived. And when we lived that year, we were getting things back. But the truth of what was really hardest for me and what, what changed my career is that suddenly I was getting all this attention and people were basically saying, well, what do we have to... Uh, what do we have to do to save the world? And I remember I was in doing an interview in Paris with this journalist, and I, I was, <laughs> he said, "What do we have to do to save the world?" And I was like, "You're asking me?" And he's like, "Who's that un guru?" No, I mean my French accent is terrible, but he's saying, "Aren't you a guru?" And uh, it's like, "No, my man." <laughs> yeah, like no. And so all of a sudden, I was put in this position where I was expected and had to use my voice and yeah. trust my voice. And that kind of changed my career, like I, in the sense that, I, that I, I've never been, I'm not a person who gives other people directions, but I encourage them to find directions within themselves. Yeah. Um, and stepping into that space in my career is the greatest privilege I've had in my life and is wonderful and was hard to learn to do. Yeah. What, hard in what way? Because, well, so for example... Uh, I mean, I probably overestimated my importance and my influence at the time, but there were all these things happening in the environmental movement and people were trying, you know, people were trying to mobilize people in a certain way. And I remember I called up before my first appearance on Good Morning America, I called up this famous environmentalist and I said, I don't know what to do. What should I say? And he said, tell him changing our light bulbs is not enough. We need to change our senators. And it's true. We do need to change our senators, of course, but that wasn't my message. You know, that wasn't my personal message. So the hard part was being willing. To, my, and my message was, you know, each of us needs to find inside of us our gift for the world, right? What, what do we have that we can give the world? Because not all of us are going to go on marches. Not all of us are going to turn vegetarian. Right. We each have. So to actually go on television and talk about this stuff without the endorsement of somebody else, to actually have the background to say my truth in front of, what, at that stage, millions of people— that was the hard part. Yeah. How did you deal with it? A lot of trusting in the world, like trusting that I could do right or wrong and things would turn out the same way. And also, you know, something that I that I tell everybody is that sometimes the biggest the biggest gift we can give the world is to go out in front of people and accept the possibility of being wrong. Like just tell, you know, just to go and tell our truth and do our best. We're so scared of showing our light, right? We're so scared of going out. So many people, as I've traveled the world, have, like one time, I remember this third grade teacher, and we were in an auditorium. I'd just given a talk. She raised her hand. She stood up. She said, I'm a third grade, grade teacher. I teach a bunch of eight-year-olds. How do I teach them the importance of the environment? And I was like, what did you say you do? And she said, I'm a third grade teacher. And I said, I'm not a teacher. You're a teacher. You tell me, how do you teach? You know, so people, I mean, nothing against her because I thought it was 
you know, she had this wonderful motivation. Yeah, of course. But what was left, what she needed was for me to say to her, you just have to trust yourself yeah. and accept the possibility of making mistakes. And we, we so don't want that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not sure where, I think it's a fear thing, you know, I think it's a fear of being judged, cast out, you know, if, what if we're wrong? You know, we're kind of told that. I remember some research recently, one of the most terrifying things that you could ever say is like, I don't know. I mean, to this day, every adult lies about that nonstop. You know, we're in a meeting and somebody, oh, did you see that movie? Did you read that book? Oh, yeah, sure. Because we're terrified of just saying, I, I, I don't know. And then having to take ownership of the responsibility to figure it out. Mm. I, I think we want, we just want people to tell us everything. <laughs> well, I, I actually think it has to do a little bit with our, how we're, how we're educated, how our whole society, like when you go to school, the teacher doesn't say, look deeply inside yourself and ask yourself the answer to these questions. The teacher tells you two plus two is four, three plus right. three Turn is six. Turn to page. Right, that's right. Yeah. So, so that actually we're, we're taught to receive truth and religion is in meanwhile what that kind of acceptance of the mystery and learning to turn inwards which used to be the kind of province of religion religion is in such a turning point at the moment so so many of us in the united states don't accept it as it stands it's in and it's, it's so it's in transition like how do we have that new yeah. conversation about looking for our lights within ourselves yeah no i i so agree and i think you know when when you think back days of aristotle and stuff like that it was it wasn't transmission, you know, it was conversation. Mm. And the conversation would eventually tease out, quote, knowledge or wisdom. I do believe, and this is not, I don't, neither of us are slamming teachers in any way, shape, or form. It's an extraordinarily noble profession. I, but I do think there's a, a huge amount of transmission that tends to happen over conversation. I, you know, it seems like a lot of that comes out of a desire for order in the system that we've had. But I think you're right. I think, you know, Society is changing. What we need is changing. What, you know, and the answers that we need to problems that we've created aren't going to come necessarily from the educational approach that's created those problems. Right. So from this place, you get vaulted into this big public conversation and you're playing this new role, comfortable or not comfortable or dancing between them. And over the course of the next few years, you know, it seems like you also, you become you kind of keep a fair amount of that public profile and consult and teach and travel. But it also seems like this book, because a lot of what we've been talking about is seem to be the nuggets of your latest deep dive into like the bigger question, which, you know, I'm obsessed with as well, which is like, how do we be on the planet? Hmm. Is that a fair sort of? Yeah. So, I mean, so what happened after the book in the film, there's a book which I wrote and a film which some other filmmakers made, both of them called No Impact Man, and they both came out in 2009. And they, you know, made another splash. There was another big press boom and lots of travel. And at that stage, I started a little nonprofit called the No Impact Project. And our flagship program is to help people live as environmentally as possible over the course of a week. It's an immersive educational program. And we run that in institutions. So I was running that and then traveling around the world talking and running workshops and all this kind of thing. And then having people again and again ask me, well, what can I do? What can I do? Or Which worried me when it became too close to instead of what can I do, how can I be like you? Because what, what you know I feel is so important is that we stop following directions because the directions tell us to you know, go to work or at first get ourselves into mountains of college debt, then go to work and be stuck in that work to pay the college debt off. Meanwhile, because 
we're stuck in work we may not necessarily like, um, the only consolation we have is to buy stuff. Like once you have a car, well, then you need a car with a Bose stereo. Then <laughs> you need an Eames chair in your office because you're stuck in this system that's not really making you happy. But the best you can do for yourself is buy more and more stuff. And meanwhile, we're turning ourselves off to ourselves and and stop hearing that the fact that the world is suffering, right? So that's following directions. And so when people would come to me and say, well, how do I now follow your directions? That concerned me because it's following directions is what's got us into this mess. Right. I mean, so the real question is, you know, how do you become like you? But but even more like you, where, where that third grade teacher trusts herself to go and teach the kids about the environment because she's trusts in being herself. And so that conversation, the kinds of things that were people were asking me, finally led me to write this current book, which is called How to Be Alive, A Guide to the Kind of Happiness that Helps the World. And it's very much a book about figuring out who you are, because all the directions are breaking down. I mean, even if you do happen to get a good job, like I say, the best you can get after that is the Bose stereo and the Ames chair. So the, the and, and meanwhile, the feeling that you're wrecking the world somehow, a lot of people have that kind of disease mm. feeling. So how do you actually figure out who you are and what your gift is to the world? And not just your gift, like the big career changing gift, but how can you live, you know, because some of us are just stuck in our situations, how can we make incremental changes in our lives where we get to feel more and more like we're living in line with our values? Yeah. And one of the things that you talk about also is that distinction is sort of like materialism versus intrinsic. And yet it really does seem like a lot of the pursuit of materialism is almost like self-medication and distraction, both from not stepping into your true self, like however you define it, maybe we'll explore that a little bit, and also, you know, not stepping into owning what your current reality, the impact your current reality may be making on the greater society around you. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's sort of like, let me just immerse myself in stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that's the kind of current discourse, you know, people... People will say it's because people are selfish or people aren't farsighted enough. I think it's really important to say that, and and it's true that buying stuff is it can anesthetize us. We that we can basically get on this kind of hedonic treadmill where we're getting small shots of pleasure from buying things. But I think it's also important to note that we are all living in a system. And that it's not about all of us being too weak or too selfish to do the things that we need to do to change the world. But actually, we've, you know, from childhood, we've been born in a certain way and told certain things and educated certain things and been subject to 10,000 advertising messages a day to tell us to live a certain way. And, and our degrees of freedom are small. We have mortgages. We have we might have our own, our kids, our kids' tuitions to pay, and and this type of thing. So, so I, I'm not so sure that it's about that. That we you have so you have to be very awake to change things in a big way, and to have you know a lot of that kind of backbone that I talked about, like a lot of that trust yeah. in yourself. So. I just think it's important to not say that it's about us always trying to anesthetize ourselves, but that we're in a system and it's easy to go along to get along, go along to get along in the system. Yeah. And and one of part of my work is about pointing out is that slowly but surely you can actually wake up to your life to the power to change your life and the power to change your world. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a big drama. You can start slowly and 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 and, and educate yourself on your power more mm. or less. Yeah, I, of course, like, I can't help having visions of the Matrix popping into my head as you talk about this. 
feel we are. We, we, in many like ways, we are. In right. Matrix. I mean, it's like you don't want to be all big and dramatic like that. But but fundamentally, yeah, you know, if we live under a veil, like you said, I think understanding that there is a system that we all exist in and certain rules and certain assumptions, many of them, we don't stand up and say, these are the rules that I accept and that I live by. It's just by default. Like the way that we live our lives is a default acceptance of the ethos that guides us without ever just kind of stepping back and saying, huh, right. does that actually make sense? Well, and I think, you know, speaking of the matrix, that business, you know, when Orpheus gives, I forgot the name of the Keanu Reeves character. But Neo. When, what's his name? <laughs> Neo. When Orpheus gives Neo the pill, you know, and suddenly he can see that he's part of the matrix. Actually, each of us gets that pill many, many times every day. It's mm. not like we're completely asleep. We all we all know that we ha- that that we care about certain. You know, we care about our our friends. We care about our children. We we want the best for our neighbors. We want the best for our friends. Most of us want the best. For the world, in fact, you know, and actually all the bad news in the world at the moment is kind of helpful in a certain way, because every time we hear something for a moment, boom, it's Orpheus's pill for a moment. Wait, this isn't the way it should be. It should be something else. But I have to get to work by nine. So blah, blah, blah. And then we get another Orpheus's pill over and over again. And so the question is, how can we actually start with these little enlightenment experiences we have where we are suddenly awake to the world and we see it suffering and we see our own suffering and we want to do something about it? How do we actually take 15 minutes each day to act in line yeah. with that? And I think it's interesting, too, because I totally agree. When you look at your first big social experiment, you know, like the No Impact Man of the Year, it was being and massively disruptive. And, and I wonder if sometimes, you know, we kind of tell ourselves, well, the only way to really start to shift, to, you know, like live in our lives more comfortably in a more aligned way and potentially even make a difference beyond ourselves is we've got to make this big, massive disruptive shift rather than kind of taking a step back and saying, well, well maybe that's right for some people, but, you know, what if I just took like one tiny step today? I have a story um, about about this kind of thing. It's in the book. It's about my friend Jonathan, and he always wanted to learn to play guitar. But he always felt like, what's the point? I don't have the time to really learn. There's so many great guitar players in the world. So what's even, you know, but he had this kind of, I want to be a music maker, you know, thing. But he had a job and he was busy and, and, and he, you know, he always kept talking himself out of it. And let's face it, guitar is hard to learn, you know. So one day he was transferring flights in Atlanta and his friend, uh, lived there, and she picked him up at the airport, and they hung out for a couple of hours, and they went to the park, and she had a ukulele, and she played the ukulele, which, by the way, is very easy to play, and she handed it to him and taught him three chords, and all of a sudden, he played the ukulele, right? And on the way back to the airport, they picked up a ukulele, and he bought it, and he took it home, and for five minutes each day, ten minutes each day, he would strum on this ukulele. Sometimes he would, you know, there's ukulele, there are lessons on YouTube, he would look, and all of a sudden, in just... You know, by doing little things, he was making music. And he had set himself up all those years by play the guitar, play the guitar. But then all of a sudden, the ukulele, which is easy, entered his life. And suddenly he became a music maker. So I call that taking the ukulele approach. You know, and I encourage people to take the ukulele approach, which is simply if you notice something in the world that's troubling you, Look at that place where that problem in the world intersects with your life. Let's say, let's say Black Lives Matter. If you're concerned about institutional racism, 
you can find a place in your life where there's where you see institutional racism. Maybe at work, maybe your employer has the habit of hiring only through personal networks, which means that it only reaches, you know, friends of friends. So maybe you can just take the time to go and talk to your employer and say, "Hey, let's advertise these jobs. Let's not and make sure that they go to all sections of our community. Let's not only hire our friends." And then in that way, we combat institutional racism. So so that actually, and that's the ukulele approach, right? That's just saying. I don't have to change the whole world. I can just change this little part of the world that I have influence over. Yeah, I, and I love that because I think we be, we just become, yeah, we feel like well, we we can take on the crushing burden of like doing the big things, so we're not going to do anything at all. So I love that because it's like it gives you permission to say, baby steps is actually okay. Like, and maybe even preferable. Maybe that's actually the most intelligent way for most of us to proceed rather than blowing up our lives in the name of something big, you know capital big <laughs> blowing up your life is okay for some people that's yeah, some people's exactly. paths but 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 that's like the guitar right, right. But, but but for some of us we just can't you know at this moment but we can pro- we can progressively this is what i talk a lot about in how to be alive is progressively change your life and you know do that one thing about institutional racism there's another story i tell in how to be alive about a woman who is concerned about coffee in the world because you know coffee has all sorts of consequences for labor has consequences for the environment has many many consequences and so she she has kept hearing about this and she feels like there's nothing she can do but one day she just decides oh hell Today, I'm, I'm just going to do what I can. And when she goes to the grocery store, she looks at the aisle at all the labels on the coffee, and she buys she, you know, which one, and she just decides the one that has the most certifications, the kosher certification, the rainforest certification, the, you know, every certification, and she buys that one. Um, and she feels like, well, I, you know, I made one step forward. Now, if she stopped there, it would be trivial, but her energy was such that each day she was going to do a little bit more. So then the next day she goes online and she researches it and she finds out that some of the certifications are actually difficult for the farmers because they're so expensive and that, that, that that causes a problem in itself. And she finds a coffee house that sells uh, direct trade coffee where the coffee house actually goes and buys coffee from the small farmer without the certification, right? Right. Then she becomes friends with the people at the coffee house. And the next thing you know, you know, they take her to, to their community garden. And then the next thing you know, they take her on a climate march. So suddenly she's moved from just buying a different coffee to being an actual out-and-out activist. And her life has changed and she yeah. has a new community of friends. And any of us can take that little bit-at-a-time approach. I'm not yeah. saying we should all be activists. That's where she ended up. Right. But the point is you start with 15 minutes today and then you add 15 minutes tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You, you ukulele it. Yeah, you ukulele yeah. it. You use the term life quest and life quester. Deconstruct that a little bit for me. So um, where we are is that we have what I call standard life approaches, another term that I, I use in the book. I, I mentioned a couple of them. You know, standard life approaches, you know, to go to the best college, that's a standard life approach. Um, to uh, earn as much money as you can is a standard life approach. To buy a big house is a standard life approach. They're kind of like, these are the things you're supposed to have to have a good life. But more and more, the standard life approaches are either not accessible to us or they don't bring us happiness the way that they're supposed to. And part of the reason why they don't bring us happiness is because they ignore the fact that the world itself is in trouble. So we get this kind of feeling like we're changing deck chairs on the Titanic, like the ship is going down and we may have a better deck chair, but the ship is still going down. So the standard life approaches don't work. And yet we don't have as a society, a new mythology, a new set of directions for where to go and how to live. 
So what that means is the only thing that we have to trust is what's deep inside ourselves, like our own light inside ourselves. So a life quester is somebody who's questing after the good. So the, the, the good life is not yet defined. A life quester is somebody that's questing after the good life. And the good life is a life where we get to be safe and happy and help the world at the same time. So a life quester are the many, many thousands of people that I've met as I've traveled the world talking about this stuff who are actually looking for their own version of, of a good life that helps the world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, and and, it, and you, you actually speak to this also, which is the role of story. You use the word mythology, you know, and you also talk about and write about the idea of story and how the stories that we tell about our current reality and about our capabilities and our limitations profoundly impact our behavior and our actions and the lives that we construct. And we take that on a macro scale, you know, it's huge. There are actually a couple of things that I wanted to reference this directly that you wrote about this because there are two lines that jumped out at me. I was just like, whoa. In the context of story, one was you write, every time we tell ourselves a story about how we're less powerful than we truly are, we become less powerful than we truly are. And then shortly after that, you shared this line, which kind of stopped me in my tracks, which is, underneath all human suffering is a false story about the world. We don't suffer because of what is. We suffer because of our stories about what is. Talk me through that a little bit. Well, let me take a step back um, first. So how I, one of the ways that I talk about how story creates the world we live in is, imagine um, your mom, when she was growing up, got bit by a dog. So when she's raising you, she always tells you dogs, dogs are not safe. Dogs are not safe. So as you go about the world, when you see dogs, you insert, you know, you have this software, the dogs is not safe software, and it loads into your hardware, your brain, and dogs are not safe. Dogs are not safe. And so when a dog comes running up to you, you always are like, get away from me, get away from me. And, and because you have this story, dogs are not safe in your mind, you don't know that when the dog is wagging its tail and it runs up to you, it's a friendly dog. But when the dog's tail is straight out and its you know its lips are curled up in a way, certain way, it's not a friendly dog. Now, so you always are saying, get away from me, dog, because dogs are not safe. Well, what happens is if you tell all the friendly dogs dogs are not safe, then the friendly dogs stop coming. Mm. But the mean dogs that want to bite you, they are not encouraged. They're not discouraged by you saying, go away. So... All that ends up ultimately coming towards you are the mean dogs. And so you've actually created a world for yourself where dogs are not safe. Your dogs are not safe story creates that world. So similarly, if we tell ourselves that we're not powerful, which is we do, like you talked about this, like saying, saying that I don't know whether I'm powerful or, uh, or not is much better than saying that I'm not powerful. Like I'm going to try this and I don't know the result. I'm going to try. My small self is going to try to help the world. And I don't know what the results will be, as opposed to I'm not powerful, therefore I'm not going to help the world, try to help the world, because I can't help the world, means that you don't even try. So, so your power is taken away by that story. Mm. And actually, you have the, you've read The Galley Proof. You haven't read the final version of the book. And I, I actually changed that a little bit. Uh. And I said we – so it says we don't suffer because of what's happening in our world. But, because, but I'd say we usually suffer because uh. of the story as opposed to making That's it absolutely – important absolute. distinction. Yeah. So, so um, in Buddhism, they talk about two arrows. And the first arrow of suffering is – you stand on my toe. Ow! You stood on my, you know, 
ow, just the ow, that's the first arrow of suffering. But what most of us lumber over under more of the time is the second arrow, which is, why did you stand on my toe? I was here first. The kind of story that we tell ourselves about the fact that you stood on my toe, right? The second arrow of suffering. Right. Um, so, so there's no getting away from, ouch, you know, but, the, but then continuing to tell ourselves a story about that um, right. is where the bulk of our suffering comes from. Got it. So you've referenced a couple times Buddhism in various forms, whether you call it Buddhism or whether you're just sort of like drawing from the ideas. I'm curious what your relationship is with that. You know, I have, um, I'm always reluctant to identify by any religion because it's so divisive in our society to say that we're Muslim or Jewish or Christian or Buddhist. And underneath all of the religions is the same thing. You know, there's this basic principle, which is don't do that, which is bad do do that, which is good. It's not just a moral principle. It doesn't, it's not just like the rules of society. It's actually what makes us feel good about ourselves and makes us able to function and be happy in our lives. Don't do that, which is bad. Don't do that, which is good. And then kind of the rest is just discussion, more right. or less. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's all the same. And as it happens, you know, it's like ice cream is all the same. And, and you know, I happen to like peanut butter ice cream. And as it happens, the practice that I pick up is a meditation practice through a Zen school called the Quantum School of Zen. As a matter of fact, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher, a Dharma teacher in mm. that school. But in How to Be Alive, the book, you'll see that there are stories from all the all the different traditions, um, Hasidic, from Hasidic tradition to, you know, Christian parables to everything, because what I really love is to study and see where the wisdom from all the religions actually links up, where we're actually yeah. saying the same thing. Do you find that there are a lot of points like that? Sure. I, I mean, uh, the whole, um, you know, I am that I am, I you know, just that, that kind of, that comes out of the, the Old Testament is very similar to in Buddhism. It's just not knowing. Like, this is it. Like, like there's no, there's no, it just is. You know, everything right. is just like this. You can't say it there. So there's that. There's, you know, there's all this, there's constant emphasis on trusting the light, the lamp within yourself. Right. Uh, trust yourself. And by trust yourself, what we don't mean is trusting, like, I want this car or I want that big a house, you know, that most wisdom posits that those types of things are not the deepest parts of our, aren't truly ourselves. Those are just thoughts that we have. Yeah. And you, I mean, you explore this in an interesting way also. There's a sort of a whole category of conversation around wanting what you want and the difference between uh, materialistic or extrinsic goals versus intrinsic. Talk to me about that a bit. So... There have been studies around the world that have done uh, been done, particularly I reference once by my friend Tim Kasser, who's at uh, Knox College, and he and the studies are about around people's goals. What what does all a human behavior aim to do? And these different stu- these studies have been repl- replicated over and over again in different cultures, different numbers, different. Uh, economic backgrounds, and they've, depending on the study, they identify between 11 and 13 or 14 goals that all of our behavior works towards. Mm. We all have the same goals, but we put them in different priority, right? right? So some of the goals like, uh, like social status, conformity, financial reward, or what they call extrinsic goals. And the reason why they're called extrinsic goals is because pursuing them in itself doesn't make you feel good. You only get to feel good if you achieve some extrinsic thing, 
you know, like the money. Intrinsic goals are things that are, if you like, psychologically closer to us. They're more in line with actual, our psychological needs. And these are goals like the need for, to pursue our own health, to do something for our communities, to be close to other people. These are what they call intrinsic goals. And they're called intrinsic because they're intrinsically satisfying to pursue them. You don't actually have to achieve anything before they start being uh, fulfilling. And and some people actually um, posit that the extrinsic goals, like for the money, the social status, are actually a roundabout pathway to get to the intrinsic goals, if you see what I mean. Like, mm. I need money so that I can make people like me, or I, right. or I need to conform so that I can be part of this group, when actually what you want is just to be part of the group. Yeah. So, so pursuing intrinsic goals is, in, I, I like to think of it as in some ways more human. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the extra, it's like a proxy for the intrinsic. It, because you do hear, I mean, you know, there's that, that classic self-help line, you know, it's, it's about uh, the journey, you know, or it's about the destination, you know, at the end. But um, I think what's kind of interesting is it's almost like... <laughs> Well, it depends. <laughs> so, some of it actually is just about the destination. There's not a lot of joy unless you actually pursue it in a way, which is more aligned with a sort of like the, that intrinsic approach to it. But, um, but yeah, the idea of pursuing things that allow you to experience joy and reward and and fulfillment, you know, just through the pursuit, um, sort of goes to the classic. You know, it's like be non attached to the end. And I think when the the end doesn't have that built-in system to enjoy the process of achieving it, then people have a lot of trouble saying, well, like, how do I not be attached to the end? But when the process of pursuing it kind of just is manifestly enjoyable and, and deeply rewarding, I think it's a lot easier for people to actually wrap their heads around the concept of, yeah, the end would be nice, but I'm actually, this is pretty awesome along the way. Well, some of some of the things are, so, for example, the the need to do service to your community, our brains are actually wired that way to cooperate with each other because we come, you know, if you think when we were, you know, coming from the apes, if you like, in the jungle, the only way we could survive is if we if if our communities thought we had value because right. if the community felt we had value then the community would would take care of us if we were sick feed us when we didn't so our brains are actually wired to need to help to show our to to prove that we're of service to our community mm. so just the proving just the doing of that automatically makes the endorphins and the dopamines and all right. of that flow yeah. in your brain. Whereas chasing after money or a car, you don't get the endorphins or anything until you actually get the money. No, no that makes a lot of sense. It, so you brought up the, the idea of community. Uh, and this is something I know which is really close to your heart. And it's something that you write about in a lot of ways, which is sort of the importance of finding your people and then being in service of your people. I, and I think that's such a huge pain point for so many right now is that they feel like they don't know where, like, where is their community? You know, like is where do they look to to find it or do they create it themselves? And then what's important when they're trying to actually find or create that? Right. I mean, it's, I, I believe it's 40% of adult Americans report being chronically lonely. Yeah, I've um, seen that's that too. But it's not just it's not just that it's just and and by the way loneliness is correlated with illness and death and and um, as much as smoking and obesity yeah. it's as big a predictor of of heart disease as those other things not to mention that it's also um, it's 
also stands in the way in, of our success in other ways. So it turns out that social connection is one of the, well, what I call social interconnectedness, which I'll explain that in a minute. Social interconnectedness, which kind of means just being part of a community, is one of the biggest predictors of success in whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Like in, in How to Be Alive, my book, success means becoming happy by helping the world, right? That, that you actually find a way to use your passions to help the world, right? And so the reason, one of the reasons why I talk about community there is, is that you will be most successful in happily helping the world if you have a community. And the other reason why I talk about it too, too is because community is actually the base from which we can, we can help the world when we come together in groups. So what I say in the book is that we need to be interconnected, not just connected. So in other words, it wouldn't just be that I'm friends with you and then I'm friends with Alex and then I'm friends with John but that I'm friends with you and I'm friends with those two, those two and those two are also friends right. with, with you so that we're interconnected, so that the bonds are all kind of crossing over. And it turns out that that kind of interconnection is what is a predictor of, of success in the things that we pursue. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really amazing how, and I think we, we've, we experience that less and less these days and, or we start to default more and more to digital uh, to, you know, to to the online world, or not even the online world, but you know, texting and online and apps to form connections and an attempt to at forming interconnectedness, and, and we do to a certain extent, but the depth of those connections stays at a level where it doesn't entirely. I think it's a great starting point, especially for so many who maybe in remote parts. My fear is that so often, so many of us stop there, or we don't go much deeper, and that really doesn't. A, it doesn't, I don't think it gives us what we really need on the deeper level. And I wonder if it allows us to then turn around and be, you know, in service of on the level that really makes the biggest difference too. Well, so first of all, the, the, what they, they, they talk about weak bonds and strong bonds. Right. And the connections that we make on Facebook and elsewhere, it's not that they're not valuable because they right. are. Weak bonds are really good for bringing us information, mm. right? So a lot of us get our news from Facebook right, right, right. and our job opportunities from Facebook. Our strong bonds are the people that we associate with and, and who are our close community. We see them every day. They don't bring us information so much because they know the same people that we know. So our weak bonds are important, but we've come to, we've come to rely on them to the exclusion of our strong bonds. Mm. The strong bonds, on the other hand, are the ground from which we do so much. So for example... Um, I have a friend, and her name is uh, Mae Bouvi. She's the executive director of 350.org, which is a climate organization. And what happened to her was she she was really lonely on campus when she was at Middlebury College because she felt that people weren't caring about climate the way she was. This was, a, say, 10 years ago. And so she started attending a Sunday night dinner where she and her friends got together every Sunday night and they talked about climate. Well, then they became so close that when they graduated from Middlebury College, what they planted, what they did was they over, they, they actually did this. They, they geomapped microbreweries in the United States because they <laughs> like good beer. And they also geomapped where up and coming coal mines were because what they wanted to do was go and protest against the coal mines while drinking good beer. <laughs> and they found a place in Montana. They had the priorities, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> And they were planning to go and do this. And then Bill McKibben, the, the guy who wrote End of Nature and so much, um, the climate activist, came to them and said, actually, would you work with me? And that's how 350 came to be born. Mm. And May told me, she said, when, she's, when she talked about um, the founding of 350, she said, all I wanted to do was provide a place where other people could have friends 
who cared about the same things as them, just as I did. So in other words, the, the very act of forming a community around something, an interconnected community around something you care about, actually leads on to action around something that right. you care about. And it makes a lot of sense. Because <laughs> I think when, when those people come together around shared values, beliefs, aspirations, th there's something in us that then just wants to harness that energy to do something. That's right. Yeah. There's some really interesting... Um, conversation that uh, that you explore also and it's around it's around three needs and I guess research um, and it's kind of funny because I'm a little bit of a research dork and I, I love devouring stuff and this was all new to me which I loved and it was research around the three I'm gonna call them needs but correct me if I'm not if that's not quite the right label it was I believe it was autonomy competence and relatedness Take me into this a bit. That's right. So you got it right, first of okay, all. Good. <laughs> and this comes from self, what's called self-determination theory. And it's the background to it's really interesting because back in the 40s and 50s, behaviorists were kind of the heads of psychology, like the, the behaviorist movement in psychology. And the behaviorist movement believed that human beings had no self or soul or whatever, or organism or whatever you wanted to call it. They were basically complicated biological machines that either moved them towards pleasure or away from pain. And that was it. And the behaviorists were able to so prove... We, we call them coders today. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. No offense <laughs> to all the coders. Let's say we <laughs> love you guys. It's a joke. But That's the coders joke, are trying right. to make the machines not act <laughs> right. that way, and, you know, with the artificial intelligence. So, and the behaviorists also, what they, their strength was that they designed a lot of experiments to prove what they said about mm. themselves, right? What the, their theories. The, on the other hand, there were the humanists, like Carl Rogers, Fritz Perls, and they kind of said, well, actually, human beings have this wonderful organ, what they call the organism or the self with a capital S, or Carl Jung was one of them too. And the organism herself strives to fulfill itself by using its highest capacities in service to, to person kind, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, they were great theorists, but they had no experiments to prove what they said. So the behaviorists were winning out because they had actual proof. Anyway, so this guy named Ed Detchy and um, his, his colleague, Michael Ryan, Self who call themselves self-determination theorists out of the University of Rochester, set out to prove the humanist stuff, the stuff that we have the self that wants to actualize. Right. And so they, how they did that is that they unpacked it and they said, we have a need for um, autonomy, which means a need to feel as though we're acting out of our own selves, not because we're told what to do or instructed what to do, or even not because we're, we will be rewarded if we do it, but because it actually comes out of our authentic selves. That's mm -hmm. to be autonomous. We act they actually proved experimentally it's a psychological need within us to feel autonomous. And then the second thing they prove is that we have a need to feel competent. We need to feel that we are able to rise up to our challenges and fulfill them. So that's why we don't like trivially easy challenges because they don't feel like we've tested, make us feel like we've tested ourselves. We don't like ridiculously difficult challenges because they make us feel powerless. We like what they call optimal challenges. And then the last thing is relatedness. That's that feeling that we're in community and that we're using our autonomy and our competence in service of our community. That's the feeling of relatedness. Right. So altogether, what it proves is basically that we want to become ourselves in ways that help or save the world. It yeah. actually proves that we have a psychological need not to be on the hedonic treadmill, not to be going to our corporate cubicle and working at things we don't believe in, but we actually want to be out there becoming ourselves and helping. A big reason why I put this in the book is because it's not about being moral or ethical, you know, like the world's in crisis and, and you should 
do what, what needs to be done to help the world. But actually, it will make you feel fulfilled and happy more so than pretty much anything else if you're out there trying to help. Yeah, so it's not like this is your responsibility. It's like, no, this is what you're wired <laughs> to, to light up when you're doing. That's exactly yeah. right. And so a big point in the book, I talk about this thing, standard life approaches in the book, which is the kind of standard way we approach life, which takes right. us, a, which is mostly about following directions these days. And what we're saying, following directions to get everything you need, but actually you should be following yourself, finding out who you really are to give what you really need. Hmm. Where does where does security enter the conversation? So security is also it's the it, that would be the fourth need, the fourth psychological need. Um, Detchi and Ryan don't really talk about security, but other researchers do. They add in the security too. What that just means is that you, in order to do that stuff, to be uh, to to pursue autonomy and relatedness and, and competence, you need right. to feel safe, right? But you you have to be careful because. What we mean when we say security in the United States is like a $2 million home. Right. And There's actually, a lot of illusion and delusion there. That's right. Yeah. We, we, need, we need to be safe. We don't need five, you know, 36-inch flat, flat screen TVs. Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole quest for certainty, you know, slash security. Same thing fundamentally. But we, when we equate it with what we were talking about earlier, you know, materialist possessions, like when, you know, equate security with I have, therefore I am. Right. That becomes this thing that never ends. And if you end up devoting all of your energy to that, <laughs> you kind of lose out of the gate. That's exactly right. That what happens is you give your energy to the materialistic or yeah. extrinsic goals instead of the intrinsic goals. And because you give so much energy to the extrinsic goals, you, you don't have enough energy left over for the, for the intrinsic. And it actively, this is another thing that, that they've proved is that pursuing materialistic goals actively makes you unhappy and part of it is because it takes time away from the intrinsic mm, which makes a lot of sense you know you have a fixed number of units of time right, <laughs> right? That's, right. that's the one thing you can't expand it is what it is that's right and, you know as we're having the conversation you know part of my head mind also goes to like well how does this overlay with maslow's hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. you know because there, it seems like it's actually um you know it's four categories instead of six i guess but is it more or less the same or is there some like major branching off or distinction that well, i don't know that much about maslow but i will say but i learned about him in high school <laughs> and it does it does make a certain amount of sense to me that we have a hierarchy of need you know we need it's true the acr needs the autonomy competence and related needs are what we call psychological needs right. and and i would add security as you did and then there's the biological needs the needs for food and water and shelter and all right, that type of thing right yeah. So those are those are what Maslow would call lower order needs, and then the others are the the higher order needs. Right. We do need those things. But one thing that I think you mentioned something that I think is really important: the search for certainty. Mm. There is no so brutal, <laughs> and there's no such thing. Right? There's you're a freelancer, and I'm a freelancer too. And one thing that I discovered: I was all my life I'd been like, oh, I wish I had the security of the people with jobs. And if you remember when it was five or six years ago, when there was an economic collapse, it turned out that the freelancers were the ones with security, and yeah. the people with jobs were not. There's no such thing as certainty. Yeah. There is such a thing as making ourselves feel safe enough so that we can pursue our purpose. That is probably meaning making ourselves feel safe for today, tomorrow, next week, if we're lucky, next month. No. But there's no such thing as making yourself safe for the next year. And if you pursue making yourself safe for the next year, then you lose out on fulfilling your purpose. Yeah. And I, I, I so, I completely agree with that. I think 
the opportunity to sit down with um, Milton Glaser a few years back. And, and at one point in the conversation, he looks at me and he says, certainty is a closing of the mind. Mm. You know, and, but, but it's not, and, and it's so powerful, but it's not just a closing of the mind. It's essentially a closing of your life. It's a closing around possibility. And it's an illusion that makes you chase it to while gobbling up all that time and energy that could have been pursuing something that's intrinsically rewarding along the way and maybe even attainable if there's an ex- extrinsic thing that's sort of, you know, a carrot which is being dangled. While certainty can never, like, it is the one, that, you know, the one thing I'm certain about in life is that certainty can never be had. That's right. You know, but we spend so much of our waking hours pursuing it and it creates so much suffering along the way. You know, and it's one thing we we talked a little bit about religion earlier and, and I'm by no means a religious zealot. But what really does fascinate me is where you find the wisdom in religions that the happiness psychologists are trying to prove now, right? Mm, so yeah. that the science and the religion kind of overlaps. And if you take the fact that, you know, we, we have a very a lot of mixed feelings around religion in our culture. But so for, for this commandment, thou shalt have no other, no other gods before me. Now, leave alone the fact that God and, but there is something that we're supposed to pursue and it's mysterious and we don't know what it is, but we put these attempts at security in the way, right? We, with the, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to worship this instead, you know, my job or or I'm going to worship you know, earning this much money. Instead, we, we, we put another God, as it were, before the main thing of becoming. You know, mm. that, I find that so yeah. fascinating that actually we can decode the old religious wisdom and find it telling us the same things. Yeah, I, it is incredible. It's funny when I look at a lot of the research being done now, especially in the field of positive psychology, to, to me, I like my, my inner thought is, oh, well, it's – the pursuit of scientifically proving the fundamental tenets of Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. Because they're yeah. looking at all the same practices that, that have very often arisen out of Buddhism, you know, thousands, over thousands of years and saying, okay, finally, well, here's, you know, now we're actually running experiments so we can actually say, like, scientifically it works. We still can't necessarily say why it works, but we have enough data to show it does. But also, I mean, Buddhism or mystical Christianity or mystical Judaism, like all the, mis- you know, the, all yeah, the mystical or, or, sects or, come together. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, completely. Thank you for sort of broadening it that way. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So what's coming to me through the conversation now, also just sort of trying to close the conversation around, you know, security, autonomy, competence, and uh, relatedness contrasted with Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that after security, it doesn't really seem like the other three are stacked on top of each order in some sort of order priority. It's just like, these are the other things that we need on a regular basis to be okay. They work together. And here's what's another another overlap that's really interesting. If you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's work on the sure, monomyth or the hero myth, right? So on the one, we have autonomy, competence, and relatedness, right? And if you think about it, the hero myth is about autonomy. That is, I'm going out on my quest. I'm leaving, I'm leaving right. the everyday and the ordinary. I'm following some hidden call that's within me that only I can hear. That's the beginning of the hero story. Then and there's um, eventually there's find my guides right find the which is kind of like finding your community of people who right. care about the same stuff as you. Then there you know then there's uh, the, the big the big challenges right. the that tests you have. the big yeah. tests that's your competence right there right, right, right? right and then there's the hero's return when the hero brings back that which he or she thought was weird or freaky in their community but and now they've discovered it's actually what makes them strong and special they bring it right. back to their community and help the community that's relatedness 
right? So it's really interesting that these things keep, they, they just tell us the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, and I, it's so, I love the, that you brought up uh, Joseph Campbell's work. I'm so fascinated by that overlay, you know, where the, the monomyth or the hero's journey, you, you know, you may have heard of, but you look at almost every story that we're drawn to, and I guess that's where his work came from. He literally crossed every society, every, like, storytelling culture, and he found the same exact pattern, and it's because I think that's the way that the human condition is wired to move through life. But so, so that brings up an interesting question for me, which is, the hero's journey is also largely known as moving through some stages of profound challenge, complete dismantling of your existing state, brutality on like internal and external levels before you quote find the elixir and then begin to integrate and return home, you know, completely new. You also write about sort of like a, the general category you would describe as um, the gentle path. Mm. So how where's the overlay? So. Remember that the hero's journey is um, it's symbolic, right? So it doesn't mean when when we think about the hero's journey in our own lives, be, because of the way the stories are told, we think that it's got to be something gigantic and massive, and it's going to yeah. take over our lives, and it could take years, and we might even die while we're at it. But actually, the what what is really happening is the way that the stories are told are big and symbolic because we may fear that we're going to die, and we may. F- fear these that it's going to take a long time but actually the hero's journey happens it doesn't happen just once in our life it happens many many thousands times, yeah. probably thousands of times if you're alive you know and you're willing to heed the call some some of us are you know we're, we've closed ourselves down and we're we're kind of dead spiritually so the gentle path that I talk about in the book is to say, look, don't start by thinking I'm going to necessarily, you can, but it doesn't have to start with I'm going to change my career or I'm going to change where I live or I'm going to change who my partner is. Those are big structural changes and sometimes thinking that we have to change those things stops us from trying in the first place. Remember I talked about Annie who started off just by buying a different kind of coffee and found herself next thing being part of the climate movement. And that's what that means is just figure out what you can change for 15 minutes today. That's mm. what, you know, there's got to be something in your life that's in line with where something in your values that you haven't been living. And you can just, it could just be make a phone call or anything. Just take that gentle path, right? And that leads you slowly and gently around the hero's journey once. And then when you return, you rest for a little while and then you go around the hero's journey again. It's not a big, gigantic you know, cataclysmic thing that you have to go through. It can be something that you go through. You can go through the hero's journey every week. Yeah. I mean, it's like the ukulele approach that we were talking about earlier. That's right. It's really funny too, because one of the things that actually started Good Life Project was an annual report that I wrote where at the end of it, I I teased. The end of every year, I would write this long kind of like reflection of the year and then sort of like thinking about the year ahead. And and I started writing this one in January 2012, and it turned into a 40-page annual report. And at the end of, of it, I teased this thing that I was working on, you know, which didn't even exist at the time. I said, hey, I'm going to be doing this cool thing called Good Life Project. I had no idea what it was going to be. But, <laughs> but at the end, a classic entrepreneur move, yeah. right? But at the end, I did know, like, I, I just wrote, I thought to myself, I'm like, why? You know, I've been helping people in various ways engage with what you might call conscious entrepreneurship. Like, what are my distinct beliefs around that? And just like really fast channeled through me, these like 10 beliefs. And so I, just for the fun of it, called them my 10 commandments. And one of them was thou shalt do epic shit. Epic shit? Yeah. And what's interesting is over the last three years, I've backed away from that. 
for the exact same reason that you're talking about. Because when you put that out as a proclamation, people think to themselves, well, is this epic shit? No, mm. Like, I'm, this matters to me. This is cool. This would be like one little thing that would make it, but it's not on the scale of like epicness. It's not going to change the world. So they don't do it. Mm. And it's funny. I just was giving a presentation on it and I, and I shared with the audience that, you know, I said, I'm come, I've come full circle where I, I, I think actually I did a disservice by using that language. And it's really just about contributing to the world in a way that matters. Even if it's like the smallest little thing, mm. just does it have meaning to you? Mm. you know, and might it have meaning for others? It's really interesting that you're talking about that. One of the things I say that the, the central principle in the, the, the book, How to Be Alive, is just that. I mean, the book's, well, I think, 438 pages. But here is the central principle. Give more energy to what is true for you. Give less energy to what is not true for you. And if you just keep doing that, it doesn't mean give no energy to what's not true for you and give all your energy because none of us are in that place. But if moment by moment you keep moving that compass needle closer and closer to true north, as you called it before, right, just keep moving closer and closer, then you'll get there. You'll be guided there. Yeah. And I really appreciate your, you know, we all want to feel as though we're doing epic shit, right, as you find it, which is a great thing. But but it actually stops us from moving ahead. Yeah, and I I, I think it's it's funny because I I rebel <laughs> somewhat fiercely to the term life purpose uh -huh. because I think when you know like some people are like well you have to know your life purpose you know before you can really do right the stuff that you're here for and I'm like but yeah. that is not a motivator for the vast majority of people it is a massive massive roadblock and most people. If they ever actually find their quote, you know, like big umbrella life purpose, they find it much later in life when they can look back and there's enough, you know, like of Steve Jobs dots to connect to actually see how they come together. Right. So that's so important. This is, again, something that we talk about vocation, yeah. our calling, right? Vocar, it means right. to call in the book. And and people say, you know, what's my life purpose? And, and it's so interesting that you said that, like, people don't know until they look back and connect the yeah. dots, right? And that's because vocation doesn't actually, there is no life vocation, as it were. There, I like to call, I call it moment vocation. Like when you're free to act from your true self, how do you act in this moment? And then, so the trick is to build a life where you can actually go where you're called moment to moment to moment. So mm -hmm. if you're stuck paying for a big mortgage, you can't, right? But if you build a life where you are free, then you go where you're called this moment and you go where you're called that moment and you go where you're called that moment. And then you go, and then eventually after some time, this is by the way, why I think it's horrendous that kids have to choose what they're going to do in college when they're 18. Cause what do they know? They don't, but eventually if you keep going where you're called moment, you can see where you've gone over and over and over again. And something, some trend at least is revealed to yeah, you. Yeah. You start to see the pattern. Right. And yeah. then that's the point at which you build a life. Yeah. Uh, so we're so much on the same page with all this. And, and I've had this conversation, I'm sure you have also with so many people where they're like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build it and make it big. I'm like, why don't you actually just look at it as an experiment first? Right. Like first, you know, because then you'll allow yourself the breathing room to just kind of say, well, you know, like this is what I'm doing for the moment because I want to see if it's actually interesting to me. Does it call me? Like, does it matter? But maybe it won't be, but at least if it's not, it'll give you the freedom to say, okay, well, let me move to the next moment and run the next, you know, to me, it's it's funny, like, a while back, I was asked, I don't know if you get asked this a lot, too, but I've been asked the question, like, what would you tell your 20-something self? 
No, no, I've never been out. <laughs> it's fun. I, I don't know why. Got you get off drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the public thing I tell us. There's like the real thing. Um, so at one point I made a video and one of them was like, you know, like your 20s are just about like, don't worry about locking into anything, man. Just like right. run a series of experiments purely with a metric of gathering data to just figure out like what lights you love up and what doesn't, you know, don't worry about finding the thing that like, and, and then building it and having to succeed, just run experiments. Like that's what it's about for, and beyond your twenties, but you know, like until you actually can hit that point. And by the way, this is, it's so interesting because these things fold back on themselves. What can make your life safe enough so that you can experiment that way is a strong interconnected community. Mm, yeah. And not only when you build that strong interconnected community, not only does it make you safe, but it makes everyone else in the network safe. And it, there's no guarantee that you're going to have everything you've always wanted, but at least you always have a couch to sleep on. Mm. I love that. There's one other thing that you talk about that I wanted to explore with you, and that's the notion of parenting. Mm. And, you know, it's a big question. Should you, shouldn't you, bio-parenting versus, you know, sort of trying organically? I don't even know if that's the right language or if I just completely offended anybody, but just... Take me into this conversation around parenting, the way that you explore, and also why you thought it was really important to actually have the conversation in the context of, of your current work. Okay, so just to explain how to be alive is it, the basic thing is become yourself to help the world. And the first part of the book is around kind of the theory about that and learning how to access yourself. The second part of the book is then talks about small relationships with the world, like how, what we purchase, how we transport ourselves, whether we're civically engaged, which aren't necessarily small, but easier to fix. And then the, the third part of the book talks about kind of bigger things like how do you build a community? How do, how do you choose whether to parent or not? And how do you run your spiritual life? So that's why parenting is in there because no. one of the biggest it's a big thing. <laughs> yeah, relationships we have with the world is parenting. And the name of the section on parenting is it's not called should I parent or how should I parent? It's called who should I parent? Mm. And I say that very advisedly. And, and then I quickly say in that section that because we're all already parents to 7 billion people, none, none of this question of there, you don't have it, you don't get a choice of whether to be a parent or not. You, you get a choice to be as to whether you're going to be a responsible parent. We all are called to nurture people in the world already. So then the question becomes, how do we fulfill that role as parent? Do we have our own biological children? Do we ad adopt children? Do we help with other people's children? Do we help people who wouldn't be called children, you know, maybe because they're elders, but they still need nurturing? How do we actually bring out that nurture in ourselves? Um, and the reason why I, there's a bunch of reasons why I address it. One is because the capacity of our habitat is too small to continue dealing with the continued population growth. There's two important uh, components to how we drain the habitat's resources. One is the number of us, and the other is how many resources we use. It used to be years ago that we talked about how people in the developing world should have fewer children because of food. But actually, it's people in the developed world, because you know Americans use so many more resources right. and Northern Europeans. So that's what led me into it. But as I got to it, what I realized is that we have so many standard life approaches, so many ways where we're supposed to parent that don't suit everybody. Right, And so um, what I came up with is what about a scheme in which people who have kids, who, who find that biologically or psychologically they just feel as though – well, let me take a step back. So, so the point – 
whether we have kids or not should be a consciously made decision. It's, it's not that it's right to have them or not right to have them. It's that if we do it, we should do it because it makes it's really right for us. So, And then the next thing is those of us who have kids support the people who choose not to have kids by sharing our kids with them. Mm-hmm. And those of us who don't have kids support the people who have chosen to have kids by helping with their kids. And that way we're actually, it's, it's like car sharing, but with kids. Because it turns out there's 14 to 18 million uh, young people in the United States who are at risk because they don't have enough adult attention. Um, on the other hand, it turns out that being a parent, much of your time is actually spent earning a living, driving the kids to soccer games, doing the laundry, not actually mentoring young people. So what you need, you know, if, if nurturing is what you need to do, then having a biological child might not be actually the best thing for you. It might because you're spending so much time earning the money to support the kids. So the question is, how can we actually all together make sure that everybody gets to be a parent and every child gets properly taken care of? Yeah, seems like all things just keep circling back to the community also and to like acknowledging the fact that we are a part of something bigger than just us. Right. That's right. We're, we're, so, I mean, and, and what a consolation that is, yeah. actually, you know, that we're not just responsible for the world, but the world is also responsible for us. And I, I, I don't know about you. I, I, I'm sure it's the same as you. I've found that the more that I realize I'm responsible for the world, the more I find that the world acts as though it's responsible for me too. Mm. I'm just letting that settle. That's a powerful statement. <laughs> so I think it's probably a good place for us to come full circle. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So mm. if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what bubbles up? I mean, it's it's so interesting because I, we share this. I think we both think a lot about what, what makes a good life. To me, to... to well, let me put it to you this way. My, my daughter, Isabella, she doesn't do it anymore, but when she was younger, I used to say to her, Bella, why are we alive? And she would say, to laugh. And I would say, and what's our responsibility? And she would say, to make sure other people can laugh too. And admittedly, six-year-old kids are like programmable computers. You can get them to say what they want. But the good life is one where you get to actually follow your passions, help in the ways that you want to help, and also make sure that other people can follow their passions and help in the ways that they want to help. So that means, you know, first of all, we have to make sure that we all have security. You know, that actually, because, and, and, and it, the truth of the matter is, is it's no fun having a good life if everyone around you doesn't. You can't laugh if there's no one to laugh with. So the good life is one where we actually get to pursue who we are as people And part of that is making sure everybody else pursues who they are as people. And this is not an elitist thing, because the first thing we have to do is make sure people have their basic needs met. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.